sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Our guest today is Greg Hamilton, among other things, an historian of religious freedom. And our topic is about how the Supreme Court uses and abuses history. And recently, in Supreme Court religion cases, has increasingly invoked what they call, quote, history and tradition. Well, unfortunately, the Supreme Court often gets it wrong. Greg, welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friend. Thank you so much. So, you know, at least in my view, it's not so wrong for the court to look to history. The problem is that they're very selective and often misinterpret or misapply the history. But for many decades, the history that the court relied on when it came to the separation of church and state was the history of Virginia. You want to start by talking about how that history informed the court and why it was so important. Well, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were basically the authors of the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. Now, Thomas Jefferson gets credit for it, but it was really, um, it took two people to master or get past because Jefferson was uh, assigned to be an ambassador to uh, United States actually during the prior to the American Revolution and during the American Revolution over to France, over to Paris. And so it was left up to Madison. See, it was started in 1776. And then it finally got passed in the Virginia legislature right when the American Revolution ended in 1781. And Madison was able to pass it because he remained at home. And they had a feverish dialogue. And as you know, mail took forever to get across the ocean over the Atlantic uh, between the European coast and the American coast for them to know what to do. Madison kind of took things in his own hands, however. It, Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom involved Patrick Henry. He was the most vocal person in the Virginia Burgesses or Assembly um, in Williamsburg. And he was the one that said, give me uh, liberty or give me death. Liberty or give me death, yeah. Uh, in saying we must take on the British Empire in this revolution. We must gain independence. We must fight to the death. And so that was his claim to fame. But to be honest with you, he didn't do anything else good after that. He was really a, I mean, forgive my language, he was kind of a, um, he was a loudmouth and didn't have a lot of scruples going on up in his head. Uh, he barely passed uh, the um, the so-called bar at that time to become an attorney, a uh, three-judge panel, and uh, he did some arm twisting to even get that. So there was not a whole lot going on upstairs, really. I mean, and everybody knew that. He was just a bloviating fool in many respects. And before that, he was a bartender, of all things. So, <laughs> you know. So, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he was a bartender. And, you know, he was a saloon bartender. And, you know, he was a man's man. He was just uh, a real macho guy, you know. And um, so Madison, who was the, you know, the squirrely, cerebral thinker. Intellectual, yeah. Intellectual, yeah, who read a lot of books and um you know, there was those back in those days that thought book learning was a bunch of nonsense. And then those who took it seriously, Madison took it seriously. And he said, basically, hey, you know, 
Patrick Henry believed that the Anglican Church, uh, he believed in his own view of the separation of church and state, except he believed that, yes, go ahead and just establish the Anglican Church in Virginia, but continue to fund it, which, which is really, I mean, a total contradiction in terms, because that's really what, how, uh, the Anglican Church was established was through tax favored, uh, status and funding. Uh, and yet he wanted that to continue. And what he called it, he was very clever in calling it what we hear today, school and church choice, essentially. In other words, each um, church and the citizens would be taxed uh, and they could give their tax to the teacher or priest or church of their choice. And of course, I mean, that was a no brainer. I mean, it was obvious the vast majority of monies would go to the Anglican church, but because the vast majority of people were the Anglicans and it would still continue to deprive the fledgling Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian and, you know, German churches, Dutch churches. It would, you know, basically uh, starve them to death. It was not a fair process. So he said, Hey, you know, this is, um, this is wrong. And he put out a memorial. Uh, it's called Madison. Madison said it was wrong. Yeah, Madison said it was wrong. He put out a memorial called Madison's Memorial. Some historians debate whether he actually wrote it, but it's very clear that he wrote it. It's his language. It's, it's you know, and then later he quoted from it uh, in a letter to uh, Reverend Jasper Adams in 1832 when this same issue came up just before Madison's death in 1833. Um, but Madison said, no, this 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 funding is is basically equivalent to restoring uh, papacy, papal-type uh, joining of church and state. He was very adamant about it, and he fought it. And he got the minority churches, the um, religious minority, the churches I just mentioned, um, to fight against it, and even brought a lot of Baptists, of course, and brought a lot of Anglicans with him. No, this isn't right. This is, we need a complete separation here. Um, and so he won the day and he was able to get Jefferson's Virginia statute of religious freedom passed through the legislature. And, and just uh, a quick correction, because I thought you earlier said that Jefferson's bill was passed in 1781. It was 1786. Maybe I didn't hear you correctly. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm, I'm a little rusty. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, it took 10 years later. Yes. Um, just actually just before the revolution, uh, Actually, just before the Constitutional Convention in 1787, which then became the model when Madison was a member of that uh, August Assembly in Philadelphia in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention. Um, that became the model for the actual language for the First Amendment to the Constitution, the religion clauses, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So and, for five decades from, you know, the 1940s, when the Supreme Court really first started to seriously um, decide what the scope of the non-establishment of religion clause of the First Amendment was, all up until about 2000 and a case called Mitchell versus Helms that I filed an amicus brief in, uh, the Supreme Court routinely invoked that history of Virginia that you were just talking about. And if there was an overarching question, the question was, okay, we have, you know, this establishment clause that makes a separation of church and state. There's this wall of separation between church and state. And what are the exceptions to it? And under what circumstances is it okay for the state to provide services? Well, fire, yes, 
you know, the fire trucks can go if the church is burning or the church school and and police protection and, uh, you know, bus transportation was really the first case. Right. And so, you know, if there's an overarching theme for those decades of cases, it's, well, where do we find exceptions to the general principle that the that the state doesn't fund religion? But since 2000, the history has been turned upside down. The court no longer invokes the history of Virginia and, uh, you know, and has completely changed its view of what history is relevant. Yeah, they basically have taken the free exercise clause and used it as a hammer against the establishment clause, which was never meant to be done. They're basically saying anything that that uh, prevents the so-called free flow of funds or the free exercise of religion um, is, you know, is discrimination. And so they're using that to tear down the wall separating church and state. And, you know, there's a number of Supreme Court cases that you're going to cover with another guest. And I appreciate that. But, you know, there's something interesting for your hearers. Um, William Rehnquist, in a case called Wallace versus Jaffrey in 1985, said that, and he was the chief justice at the time, said basically uh, the separation of church and state is a myth that we can no longer afford. I mean, it's just, it's unconscionable to even talk about it. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. A metaphor based on bad history and bad law that should be frankly and explicitly abandoned, I think is a pretty close quote. Well, this is the interesting history. Sandra Day O'Connor, who was also on the court and the first woman pointed by Reagan, the first woman on the Supreme Court, dated William Rehnquist at Stanford Law School in California. They were bosom buddies. And so... She used that time between 1985 and a case that occurred in 2006 called Davy versus Locke in Washington involved um, direct state funds being used to support a uh, seminarian to go to the seminary. And Governor Locke opposed it and said, no, that's a violation of establishment clause. It got appealed, uh, kept getting, uh, Locke kept getting winning in his own state, but Justice Scalia kind of plucked it out and William Rehnquist, uh, who was still uh, Chief Justice, had been convinced by that time over those many years, over 21 years, to conclude that he was wrong in Wallace v. Jaffrey. In fact, in footnotes 106 and 107 in William Rehnquist's majority opinion in that case, he rebukes Justice Scalia and says, you need to look to the Virginia statute of religious freedom and what Jefferson and Madison achieved there to understand true history. We've had history wrong, and you have history wrong. So it was a real rebuke. And of course, in that case, um, the Establishment Clause was upheld, the separation of church state was preserved. But since then, we've had several cases this year, which your next guest will cover, that has totally obliterated that. Neutrality, government neutrality, has completely been blown up. So, Greg, it strikes me that in service of the court's new desire to see the need to permit government funding, especially of religious schools, but of churches generally, that they're looking at a different point in history. They're looking at um, the latter part of the 1800s when there were a whole lot of states that passed laws restricting government funding of religion And they're saying, well, that tradition is all anti-Catholic. And in doing that, they ignore both the fact that the prohibitions on funding of religion were universal in the colonial period and that the restrictions on government funding were readopted by most of these states 
in later years, in the mid to late 20th century, having nothing to do with concerns about funding, you know, of anti-Catholicism. Uh, is that a fair assessment of of what the court's been doing with religion these days? Well, yes, but there's a great... With history, I mean. Yeah, yes. And, and again, it's wrong history, uh, as Madison pointed out years ago. Um, but the whole point is, is that they want to have their cake and eat it too. Right now, the real issue is, do religious schools, do parochial schools, do private schools really want that money because they know that will come with strings attached? You know, the old saying, uh, he owns the gold makes the rules. Well, that's definitely true in this case. And in the case uh, that the Supreme Court just decided in Maine involving uh, school funding of a religious elementary school, there, no school in Maine right now is picking up that money because they know there'll be strings attached. They will be challenged for their religious mission if they happen to have a same-sex individual or somebody or some teaching in their school, whatever the case, where the government starts to poke its nose. And so the, what they want is to be able to have their cake and eat it too. And so what I think they're doing is they're holding back from getting that funding. They're waiting for another case from the Supreme Court to say, yes, you can not only receive this funding, but yes, you'll be you'll be totally exempt from any uh, prosecution or any claims of discrimination by anyone. And that's really what they're waiting for. And that's the other shoe that has to has to drop here. And that's where it's all going, where neutrality is not completely obliterated, but it's almost. And when that happens, when that other shoe drops, it's completely gone. Our guest today, Greg Hamilton, a stooped history of historian of religious freedom, and my good friend, thanks for being with us, Greg. As we close, remember at Freedom's Ring, we don't just talk about religious freedom, we help workers suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at churchstate, all one word, churchstate.org. And don't forget, friends, freedom is not free. Be informed. Get involved. Join the North American Religious Liberty Association, producer of Freedom's Ring, on the web at religiousliberty.info. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Ronach. Until next week, let freedom ring. <laughs>